Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined today for an end of year special Americano episode. And I can think of few better people uh, or no better people, in fact, to talk about what's going on in America right now and look ahead to 2024 than Victor Davis Hanson, who is a classicist, military historian and author most recently of The End of Everything, How Wars Descend into Annihilation. Victor, thank you very much for coming to Americano. It's good to have you here. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a piece you wrote quite recently. I read it on American Greatness. I'm not sure where it was first published, called Weimar America. And this was a very interesting essay where you suggested that something very dark and creepy was happening in America. And you were looking at the pro-Palestinian protests on campuses. And you think that a sort of strange mix of... Progressive politics, a kind of anti-Americanism on campus, is sort of combining to bring about something quite authoritarian and dark in American politics. Can you give us a, a summary of your thesis? Yeah, I think the American left, oh, for the last 20 years, especially as it's manifested in the university, has adopted this cultural Marxism of binaries, oppressed, oppressor. People have talked about this. And... Even though the Palestinian radical Hamas movement is illiberal in the sense it doesn't tolerate feminism or homosexuality or any of the so-called decadent, what they consider decadent in the West, it has fused as an oppressed group with this uh, cultural binary in the university. And in that paradigm, Israel has become the foreign version of the white colonialist on American campuses, and even in K-12, through because our high school teachers in this country are trained out of the schools of education and the university. And so they've demonized Israel as a settler, a Western colonial outpost, and then a force multiplier, of course, is the anti-Semitism. Before, they made a very false but calculated distinction between what well, not being anti-Semitic, but just being anti-Israel. Now that facade has vanished. So if you're at UCLA, uh, people hit pinatas and they don't say hit the blank Israeli, they say hit the blank Jew. Or when they chase Jews into the library at the Cooper Union University, they don't ask them what their particular feelings about Israel. And especially the universities are now the embryo or, or the cultivator of this new anti-Semitism on the left. And uh, part of it is because we have let in over 300,000 foreign students from the Middle East. Most of them pay the full tuition, so they're welcome. They're subsidized by the Gulf monarchies. And a country, just a gutter alone, is given $10 billion. The Saudis have, the Kuwaitis have. So they fund Middle Eastern studies programs that are the sort of the home for these students. And... uh, at the same time, we have dropped meritocracy the last after George Floyd, but even before with radical affirmative action that's now called woke admissions or even repertory admissions. So on some of these campuses, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, the number of white, so-called white students has gone from the previous proportional representation formula of 65 to 70 percent that reflects their demographics in the general population down to about 20 or 30 percent. And that has hit Jews very hard because they were they excelled on the SAT test that was they, if I could stereotype a collective. And as Asians, they were discriminated against. And you put all of these things together, you have fewer Jewish students on campus, you have more Middle Eastern students, and then you have a leftist majority that sees Israel as culpable for being white, Western, and colonialist. And you put all that together and they're not shy about uh, expressing anti-Semitism, well beyond anti-Israelism. Well, you mentioned there Black Lives Matter. And of course, four years, 2020, we had the big Black Lives Matter protests, riots all over America in cities all over America. And it was a very odd and frightening time for a lot of Americans. And 
as you're alluding to there, there's a connection between those riots and a lot of the pro-Palestinian protests you see, not just in America, but in European cities too, where it's not really about the issue so much as it's an expression of violence against the West or an expression of resistance against the West, is it not? And, of course, you had the, the Chicago chapter of Black Lives Matter who, who posted that picture of a paraglider. Yeah, I think there's two things going on there. One is the left in particular, but even Americans in general, have been reluctant to examine honestly the black leadership in America. And you name any major black leader political, and you can cite some anti-Semitism that they have expressed. Going back to Al Sharpton, who read the Freddie Market riots in the late 1990s at Tawana Brawley, and he said, put on your yarmulke and come over here, I'm ready for you. We have Jesse Jackson talking about Jaime Town when he ran for president. No need to talk about Louis Farrakhan. Of course, he had a picture with his arm around Barack Obama. The Black Lives Matter people have been very open about their hatred of Israel and and bordering on uh, anti-Semitism. The Women's March was uh, supposedly an intersectionality of different races and sexual orientations in women. That was rife with anti-Semitism to the point that the Jewish women had to drop out. There's a long history of there, but under this new intensified DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, dash woke, they have postulated that they are victims of black people. Any person who's not white has declaimed victimhood. And they have substituted the old barometer of class. If you were poor, you were oppressed. Because after all, the United States is a very upwardly mobile society. And Marxism never took hold the traditional economic Marxism because of that fluidity. But once you substitute race, which is immutable, then all sorts of wonderful things happen. You're a victim. LeBron James is a victim. Oprah is a, a victim. Michelle Obama is a victim. No matter what the privilege is, you claim victim status. And what does victim status provide? It provides preference in hiring, retention, promotion, admissions. But more importantly, it's like taking out a indemnity policy. You cannot be racist, biased, sexist, homophobic, because you are a victim. And if you are that, and you, like Kanye West, who expresses virulent anti-Semitism, then you are somehow troubled, or you were forced to do that, or you must understand how Hollywood agents work, something like that. And so those two, the fact of this historical anti-Semitism in the black community, and then its reification among the woke movement is, is really explains why it's so overt. And we see the squad the four so-called proverbial left-wing members who all brag about being non-white, they were virulently anti-Israel. They've had, they have a record of anti-Semitism. Ilhan Omar, the Benjamin's baby, Miss Talib, cheering on river to the sea. And then we had a hundred people in the house that could not even vote yes on a resolution condemning Hamas. And when you look at the a background of all of them, they would all, I think 95% of them would qualify in some manner as diversity, equity, inclusion, according to their own standard. Mm. You mentioned uh, Kanye Wester, and of course, he's become a cult figure on the right, on, if you like, the far right, if you want to call it the far right, yes. American politics. And you are seeing among a lot of young American right-wingers, not a lot, a fair number, a quite a virulent and explicit anti-Semitism that is perhaps more explicit than what you see on the left. Have, have you noticed that? When I was growing up, I'm 70, the anti-Semitism was largely confined to what I would call the Neanderthal right. I live out in the middle of proverbial nowhere. And when I've never met a Jewish person until I was 18. But there were ethnic groups, Dutch, German, Swedes, all sorts of different groups who felt that they were being robbed by the Jews on the East. They didn't even know what that meant. So the Jews controlled the fruit market, the raisin market, etc. So we grew up with that. But this new right wing, it's not nearly as large or influential or predominant as left wing, but it has a different twist to it. It is an anger. They claim that Jews are 70% liberals. So how they manifest that anti-Semitism, it is, why should I worry about Israel? Or why should I worry about they're going after Jews? Because... 
Jews are liberal and therefore they got what they deserve. Now, if they're conservative Jews, I'll make an exception for them. But that's a lot of it, that it's kind of a spiteful, they got what they deserve by getting in bed with the left. And um, I think that's 90%. Albeit, you know, people like Nick Fuentes and a small group, they resonate the old right that Jews, like Kanye West has said, the Rothschild, they always bring up the Rothschilds. They control everything. Mm even though they're 2.5% of the population in this country. Yes. And they make up about 60% of the anti-Semitic so-called hate crimes. Yes. There are people on the political center, left and middle in American politics and American society, who are very critical of Israel and critical of their response to this war. And I'm not sure one can always accuse them of anti-Semitism, but they do often say, I'm thinking of John Mearsheimer, who we recently had, on the podcast, you know, mm-hmm. the, there is an Israel lobby. It has an excessive influence on American foreign policy. Do you think that's thinly veiled anti-Semitism or do you think they have legitimate concerns? And uh, I don't think so. I, I've read his work as you have. I don't think he's an anti-Semite. I think what does occur, though, that a lot of these people who feel that the neoconservative movement during the Iraq and Afghanistan war were... And I don't believe, I don't adhere to this. I supported the Iraq war and the retribution in Afghanistan. But the, the fact that, you know, Bill Crystal or David Frum or Max Boot, they lump those people in and said they have an alternate agenda to get us into an optional war in the Middle East on behalf of the security of Israel. I don't think it made Israel that much more secure, to tell you the truth. But nonetheless, people on the right who were realist political thinkers said, you know what? And these sort of predated Donald Trump. They said, we have to exercise military interventions only in a very strict, narrow manner that's entirely in the interest of the United States. And we balance power. We, we choose our allies. And the blind spot there was they did that. And under that paradigm, they say, why do we favor Israel and not this country or that country? They are culpable of, of looking at the Middle East, 500 million Arab Muslims and saying, well, wait a minute, there's only one country, a little 11 million people who are a constitutional system that are Western, whose educational and public culture is similar to that of Europe and the United States, and has a horrific history of being hounded for 2,500 years and nearly wiped out half the Jewry in the world during the Holocaust, and they deserve a special exemption. And they don't buy into that. And so I don't know what their motives are. But I, I think in most cases, they're hardcore realists and just they don't put any historical or cultural capital into Israel or its unique system. They just look at it as a, a blank slate like any other country and say, why are we favoring Israel rather than these others without the context that's so necessary, I think. Yes. Well, let's get away from Israel and anti-Semitism, even though that's a very interesting essay that you wrote and you make some very good points. And talk about, again, go back to the Black Lives Matter thing, but in the context of 2024, because in 2020, I remember thinking it was very odd because you had the pandemic. In some ways, it seemed like a sort of outbreak of anger that kind of sprang out of everybody being locked down. You had this very strange story of George Floyd, which we're now discovering. There's been a very interesting documentary recently called The Fall of Minneapolis, which is trying to sort of reevaluate what happened uh, with George Floyd. And uh, I mean, that makes it pretty clear that Derek Chauvin was, if not the victim of a kangaroo court, was certainly tried in very unfair circumstances and had no chance of a fair trial, really. And that if you watch the body cam footage of George Floyd's arrest and death, if you look at it, the case in the round, it should not have prompted this mass global outburst of anger about racial justice, because it wasn't a very good example of racial injustice. And I'm sure you could find much better examples of, in, of racial injustice in America. Looking back now and thinking ahead to what might happen in the election next year, what do you think was going on there? Well, part of it was that the United States made a tragic mistake by locking down the entire country and then turning over their constitutional liberties and freedoms to unelected bureaucrats 
in the CDC, the National Institute of Health, of uh, NIH, National Institute of Allergies under Dr. Fauci, et cetera. And so when you put 330 million people in isolation, and then you start seeing all sorts of psychological problems, substance abuse, alcohol, that's all documented that the toll is more than the actual virus, economic, cultural, social, health-wise. And so I think that was a force multiplier. The other force multiplier was, of course, Donald Trump. And they felt that if they could go out in the street for whatever pretext, and I think I agree with you on George Floyd, it was a pretext, then they could, along with the lockdowns, destroy the presidency of Donald Trump. And they did. And of course, they went for 120 days, 35 to 40 deaths, $2 billion in damage. They burned down a courthouse, a police precinct. They tried to burn down the historic St. John's Church. They rushed the White House uh, grounds trying to get at Trump. Uh, Kamala Harris, who was in contention for being nominated that summer for vice president, urged it all on, said it won't stop, it shouldn't stop. And that, of course, when you juxtapose that to the single day buffoonish riot of the Capitol, there's no comparison. But nevertheless, that was what they did. They manipulated. And then in the case of the particular racial component, the more that they rioted and the more that they made these false charges, that it was systemic racism when we know that economists like Roland Fryer, or even the Washington Post had showed that unarmed black suspects are not killed in any greater number if you look at the number of police encounters in which they're involved in than other groups. Nonetheless, once they had that narrative down, it proved enormously lucrative in a career sense because suddenly we were hiring tens of thousands of repertory diversity, equity, inclusion czars. And the military was changing their method of promotion and retention. So there was careerism. There was the trying to destroy the presidency of Donald Trump. And there was the psychological bewilderment that followed the lockdown. And then finally, to, we have to put this in perspective. The left has an agenda on race, on crime, on open borders, on energy, on foreign policy, on genderism that does not, never earns 50% approval in any poll. And so to paraphrase Rahm Emanuel, the former chief of staff of Barack Obama, they always look for a crisis, serious crisis that should not go to waste. And we saw that with COVID. We saw that with George Floyd. We saw that with January 6th. And we even saw it, I mean, all of these things, there's a pattern here. The Russian collusion, Christopher Steele fusing GPS. No one on the left now says that was accurate. They all admit it was made up. Everybody now says, we're sorry, there was a real laptop. It did belong to Hunter Biden. 51 intelligence authorities that were rounded up by Anthony Blinken and the former CIA director, Mike Morrell. That was a farce, too. There was no bank pings, the Alpha Bank communicating with uh, Donald Trump and Trump Tower to prove Russian. That was a farce, too. So it, the whole George Floyd becomes part of a serial group of media-inspired hoaxes. Juicy Smollett is another one that paralyzed the country. It was a total fraud, and yet Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi, they all said this is more proof that we need DEI. And... Um, they do this because they can only thrive in a crisis and push through radical changes in American culture, politics, economics, when people are paralyzed or they're afraid or they think they're all going to die of COVID or they're, they're, they're so sorry that they're racist or Derek Chauvin is a representative of them themselves and they don't know what they can do or uh, the Russians are under every bed. That kind of thing. And that's what the left is, continues to do because, after all, they control all of our institutions. I mean, that's not a paranoid statement to say the corporate boardroom at Disney, Target, Bud Light, uh, American baseball, Major League Baseball, the entertainment, media, Silicon Valley, foundations, K-12 universities. So they have enormous communication influence and public opinion molding but not grassroots. And every once in a while, when it catches up to them, as it did in 2016, they go completely paranoid. And so they, they change the voting laws and most under the guise of a crisis of COVID from 
in most states voting on election day to 70% not voting on election day, and yet the error rate for ballots in most states dropped by a magnitude of 10. So this is how they operate. I think it's historically that's how the hard left always operates. They look for a crisis to exploit and therefore for a brief second to seize power and change things before people wise up to them. And as you touched on, they create a whole new class of jobs. Yes. Because in the pandemic, there was this, you know, the government was had a sort of cash fire hose that it was firing at everything. Biden has been a very heavy spending president, partly as pandemic recovery, but then on from there with infrastructure and, and the Inflation Reduction Act and so on. And included in, in all his heavy spending bills is a large chunk, hundreds of billions, dedicated to DEI, diversity, equity, inclusivity, uh, directed to that agenda. And so they are creating a whole class almost of people whose jobs it is to enforce DEI. Is that right? Yeah. The irony of it is that it's not confined to, but it predominates in the corporate boardroom, of course, and in academia. What's ironic about it is Traditionally, faculty who have a pretty soft life, speaking as an academic of the last 50 years, I mean, you have your summers off, you have guaranteed tenure, lifetime employment, you know, 10 and 12 hours at most in class, and yet you're always a wounded fawn who's complaining. But one thing that's endemic among academics, they hate administrators. They hate all administrators. They think they're lazy, they're careerists, they take away from teaching, and they have a good argument. And then suddenly, to be put in this situation where Stanford University, for example, where I work, might have had 80 or 90 of these people hired in mass. And suddenly you look at, on top of years of doing this, and you look at 15,000 Stanford students and about 14,000 administrative staff. And so that was one incident. The other thing is, and this has really been not recognized, but the marquee value, the cattle brand that Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Princeton... Uh, Penn, MIT, allows a student. It's a gateway to success in the bicoastal careerist trajectories. But it's losing that sheen almost geometrically because with these new repertory admissions and no SAT and no comparative ranking of your GPA high school grade point, then you're letting people in on the basis of their race or their statement. We let a person in Stanford who just said Black Lives Matter, he wrote it a hundred times, and they thought that was great. And so what's happening is this faculty that welcomed in DEI is not only furious that these people make more than they do, they don't teach and they take away resources for scholarships, sabbaticals, etc. But more importantly, they have made it almost impossible to maintain the standards that a Stanford or Harvard or Yale said were absolutely essential. They said it, not you, not me, to ensure American preeminence. They always would say this, well, whatever you say about the university, everybody in the world's coming to them because we are the best in blank, blank, business, medicine, uh, engineering, whatever. I don't think they try to say that anymore about the law or the humanities. But nevertheless, that's the argument that they made. Now, all of a sudden, if you talk to them, they'll say, what are we going to do? We have all of these non-traditional students that were let in the last three years, especially since George Floyd. Do I water down my curricula so that we put in dash studies courses, black studies, gay studies, environmental studies, peace studies? Or do I just simply assign three books instead of 10 when I'm teaching humanities of the Western world? Is yesterday's D today's B? Because if I don't do any of those things, then my grading turns up as systematically biased or indeed racist. And there's a DEI person over my shoulder who then calls me up and says, I don't see a commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion in your syllabus. I don't like the tenor of the books you're acquiring. So it's kind of ironic, but DEI was an enormous boomerang back on a left-wing academic conglomerate, and they don't know what to do about it. They've, it's almost like they committed collective suicide. And remember, of course, that the left in America is so prestige conscious and so snobby and so aware of their brand, and suddenly their brand is eroding at a geometric rate, and they, and they don't know what to do about it. And they know why it's happening, but they're so timid they can't say, 
DEI is destroying the university, it's destroying the curriculum, it's destroying standards, it's, it's blowing up the entire idea of meritocracy. And pretty soon a Georgia Tech uh, coder or Texas A&M uh, engineer is gonna be so much more coveted and desirable for an employer than a Stanford equivalent. Do you come across a lot of liberals, probably Democrats, in the way they vote, who have been so horrified in academic circles and so on? Because you see it quite a lot in the media. You see, you know, I'm thinking about people like Bill Maher, Barry Weiss, the so-called intellectual dark web, which is largely comprised of, I'd say, non-conservatives who are, you know, people used to say that neocons were mugged by reality, I think was the phrase. But it's almost that they've been mugged again by the culture wars or whatever it is, by progressivism, and they are suddenly horrified and very, very anxious, but also frightened. Yeah, I do. I don't think they've completely made the transition. So they always cling to something that allows them to remain in the leftist community, enjoy that access or entree to the New York Times op-ed page or being reviewed in the New York Review of Books or you know, get a MacArthur grant or a National Endowment for Humanities. They don't want to surrender what they understand privately to be a completely biased system of which they were beneficiaries. So how do they square that circle? They'll say things like, oh, wow, Victor, these people are anti-Semites. These Hamas people are killers. These people are nuts on campus. What's happened? But then they'll say, but of course, I'm not voting for Donald Trump. Or this is all because of Netanyahu. And so they're, uh, or this is, you know, the abortion, I just can't, not in my name will I vote for somebody who wants to restrict abortion in any way possible. So they always are looking for some fossilized vestigial issue that they can cling to because they know their entire intellectual, cultural, political cosmos is, is blowing up. And they know they're targeted by the very people that they fueled and fostered and sponsored and that, that they, they're hated and they don't know quite what to do. I see it in the Asian community a lot. I see it in the Jewish community a lot. I see it in the, the so-called white academic community. And, and you know, it's very funny. They will tell you things that are so self-incriminatory and they're, they're not even aware. They'll say things like, my son went to Stanford SAT camp when he was six. He got an 800, an 800 victor, a perfect SAT score. He went to Sacred Heart. He was at 4.3 with his A-plus uh, advanced placement courses. We sent him to Tanzania for the summer. He helped build a well. He didn't get into Stanford. Can you believe that? I said, of course. They rejected 70% of the students who chose to take the SAT as an optional benefit and got a perfect score, which is almost impossible to do. 70% of them were rejected. So they tried themselves in the fact that they did this to your son. And it's usually somebody who's very wealthy, but maybe a full professor or a doctor or a lawyer, but not quite a dean or provost who can have exemptions for their own or can give $10 million, which is the unspoken price to get your kid into one of these schools. But I think all that's going to end too. I really do think that the university system, the elite university is an ossified idea now. And they've blown the only thing that justified them uh, to the left, and that was the prestige that, and, and the career enhancements that they offered with these letters and degrees after their name. And now they've destroyed that. Sort of like Harvard and Yale and Stanford and Princeton are sort of like Bud Light now or Target or Disney. Is it like a strange process of triangulation, though, for the American left, where they're now the American center is much more hardcore pro-abortion than it was uh, until very recently. Yeah, it is, um, I mean... Because, you know, a lot of liberals will say, no, I'm, you know, I'm a good liberal, I believe in abortion, but I, uh, I'm i not going along with a lot of this trans stuff. And it's almost yeah, well, that they, that, that, as, as I think that, you suggested... They, they're not at the point yet where they'll, they will say that, but they will say things. How can we kill in the birth canal ten to 15,000 babies partially birth abortion. And why would people, even though that's a little bit, that's a small percentage, how can they do that? Or why would they let a biological male destroy 50 years of feminism's efforts to get equality in sports and destroy all past records by heroic women, 
breakers. They'll say that, something to the equivalent of that. Yes, they're aware of that. I think we're going to see a lot of changes in the 2024 electorate. I think you're going to see, no matter who the Republican nominee is, even Donald Trump, if he should be nominated. And I think, you know, it's a given except for his legal jeopardies. But the point I'm making is you're going to see, I think, about 45% of the Hispanic vote will go conservative, maybe 20% of the black vote, 60 or 70% of the Asian vote. And if Joe Biden finishes out his term and is going to be the nominee, those, those percentages will go even higher. And this time around, what is, we're, I don't know if you've watched the American media, but there's a new mem or new topos. It's Donald Trump is going to destroy democracy. Donald Trump's a dictator. We got to be careful. It's, this is the end of democracy. And what they mean by that is the left is saying collectively, if I were Donald Trump after what we did to him, and if I had power, then this is what I would do because I've done it in the past with the, with the FBI and the CIA and the DOJ and the IRS. So, so a lot of it is projection. And the other thing that they're paranoid about is that Donald Trump's people around him are not like the people in 2016 or 2020. He's not going to appoint John Bolton or Jim Mattis or all the people that the left by partisan Washington crowd want. He's got a whole team around him that are getting very qualified but very conservative MAGA people. And they have blueprints about what they want to do in the first, I don't know, 90 days, close the border, start encouraging more energy development, looking at federal statutes that are violated and interstate crime, stuff like that. Hmm. And they will freely admit to you, and I've talked to some of them, that they screwed up in 2016 because they never thought they were going to win. And they brought in all kinds of crazy people, or they brought in people who claimed that they were fair and, and yet they undermined the uh, agenda from the beginning. And so what the left is looking at that, and they know it, they're saying, my God, if we lose the Senate, and we get Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump, they're going to do stuff that is going to undo all of what Joe Biden and Barack Obama did. And we got to stop that. So we're going to call them dictators and fascists. And we're going to try to do anything we can to stop them because democracy will die in darkness. And they'll almost literally tell you that when you talk to them. Yes. And, I mean, in many ways it feels like an echo, but a different kind of echo to what we had in 2016, where you heard the same arguments. You heard that Trump was a dictator, that he was a fascist, that he was going to destroy American democracy. But this time it's a bit more shrill because there's there's more fear. Um, but I'd also say that it doesn't generate the same response. I mean, Robert Kaplan... No, wrote, because they were wrong on everything, so everybody says to, to them now, yeah, we heard that with... Uh, Fusion GPS. Oh, yeah, we heard that with uh, the laptop stuff. Oh, we heard that with the first impeachment. Yeah, we heard that what you said about January 6th, but not about 2020 riots. Yeah, we heard that. We heard that. We heard that. So the, the indictments have helped Trump. If he can get out of them, uh, it's helped them because people are really angry about what the left is doing. They know that if anybody did that to any of their candidates, they would go crazy. So a lot of it is projection, though. I, I really do believe that, that when you t they feel any means necessary or justified to advance or achieve a morally superior end, which they just declare de facto it is, and therefore they assume that the conservatives would do the same thing they would do, and therefore they're terrified in a way of themselves. And so... That's what they impute to Donald Trump. The other thing is they understand that the way that our system works, on these rare occasions when you regain Congress and the presidency and you know what you're doing, Trump had that opportunity in 2017 for a brief 18 months, but he didn't know what he was doing fully. Mm. But now he does, I think, and DeSantis surely does. If either one of those conservatives should win the Congress and the White House, they're not going to screw around like, you know, Mitt Romney or John McCain or the Bushes. They would try to enact pretty sweeping social, cultural, economic, political change. And that would be welcomed by the American people. And I think it would work to their benefit. And that's why this paranoia 
is manifesting itself in these crazy conspiracy theories. Well, they do sound like crazy conspiracy theories, but as as you suggested, there are a lot of people on the right, a lot of people who support Trump, who effectively wouldn't mind if he was a dictator because they feel that democracy has been so debased since 2016. They, that Congress, even before 2016, that Congress for several decades now has been completely paralysed, that there's a dysfunction in American democracy, that, that the deep state, if you want to call it that, gets in the way of any reform. And well, that actually, what, what, yes. what America needs is a strong man, is a kind of dictator. You know, not to, I, I realise dictator is a sort of silly and overused word, but not a conventional democratic leader, certainly. Yeah, I think what the left is afraid of is that a Republican would be sort of like FDR, who did things in retrospect that they would like to do and, and have never had the opportunity. So when FDR tried to pack the Supreme Court, that was always considered a big embarrassment. But now that the left says, we got to do that. But when they look at the right and they see things that have happened in American history with an extraordinary use of presidential power, and then they look at what the MAGA agenda is, that extraordinary use of presidential power would not be used to invade Iraq or go into Afghanistan for 20 years or Vietnam because they're very careful about not wanting to dissipate American power in optional wars in the Middle East, for example. So they ask themselves, well, what would it be used for? Well, maybe it would be used for balancing the budget or cutting back radically on federal expenditures or ending DEI, affirmative action, racist concepts or separate dorms or second graduations for universities that receive federal monies. Or maybe they would tax the endowment income on universities or maybe they would get the federal government out of the student loan racket. All of these things that they can see at present could do very easily. And more importantly, and this is what I think really frightens them now, is they did things under Obama and Biden that have provided the tools for the next Republican presidency that had congressional control. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, Joe Biden tried to just, by fiat, cancel student loans. He just drained the, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve right before the midterm. They made changes in the state by suing individual states in the court to overturn the legislature's balloting laws, which is mentioned in the Constitution that state legislatures are the primary custodians of the way people vote. And so they did extra legal things and got away with it and used lawfare in a way that we haven't seen. And so they kind of set premise, and you can really see it right now manifestly, because suddenly whistleblowers are evil. Michael uh, Alexander Vindman and Caramella destroyed Donald Trump basically with the first crazy impeachment. Now, all of a sudden, IRS whistleblowers, hey, these people are awful. They're telling lies about Joe Biden. Of course, they're much more accurate than Vindman was. And then all of a sudden, you can't impeach a president in the first term the moment he loses the House majority. That's not what the founders wanted. But that's precisely what they did with Donald Trump. Or they'll say things like, you can't go after the president's family. How dare they subpoena Hunter Biden? Then you say to them, well, you know, you January 6th committees subpoenaed Ivanka Trump, of all people, and Jared Kushner, and they brought the Trump boys in to testify. Come on. And so they've, they've broken all of these once taboo areas, and now they're afraid that they have given a green light to any Republican who's crafty enough to do what they did. Uh, you, you mentioned that you think Donald Trump is, barring legal things, going to be the Republican nominee, and it certainly looks inevitable, assuming no legal things or, or, or worse. And it looks likely that he will face Joe Biden, although we'll see about that. But let's assume for now that it is Trump-Biden again. Polls suggest, we don't know whether to believe these polls, but polls suggest that Trump has a slight advantage nationally at the moment. I think back to the election eve 2020, when after months of rioting in all these American cities, Black Lives Matter riots in all these cities, a lot of streets were boarded up in Washington, in New York, in other cities, yes. in anticipation of a Trump victory, because... Um, there was an assumption that that would cause a major left-wing revolt. Do you think, uh, is it hysterical to speculate that there could be 
you know, a, a full-blown civil war in America if Trump wins the presidency in, no, in November? Or even if he doesn't? Uh, no, I don't think it'll happen for this reason. In 2020, you've got to remember what the left strategy was. The left strategy was, we're not going to nominate Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker or Kamala Harris or Julian Castro or Pete Buttigieg, none of these hard leftists because they knew they couldn't win. We're going to get this facade of a candidate, good old Joe Biden, the blue collar conservative Democrat that used to pal around with segregationists. Good old Joe Biden. That was a myth. And then they basically got a facade and had the Obamas and Bernie and Elizabeth control appointments and policy. And the point was, they were wise enough not to put a radical leftist who would have no support. But they did put a radical leftist. That was the plan with Joe Biden, even though I don't think he knew it. So we've had four years of that. And he's 33% in poll after poll the last two weeks. And when you look at the border, it's about 25%. So if you have a candidate, whether it's DeSantis or Trump, maybe even Haley, who knows, and they say the last four years have been a disaster and they're destroying your life, you can't get an allergy medicine, toothpaste in a pharmacy in a big city because it's locked up because of smash and grab. You can't even park in San Francisco without having a placard in your car window. Nothing here, car unlocked, please don't break window. Or you can't walk down the street, Market Street in San Francisco without getting human excrement on your soles of your feet. Everybody sees that now. So that's why when you have a president who's polling 33% and his agenda on the border, on crime, is 25%, if you have a Republican person who runs on, I'm going to undo the mess that happened, and then you're going to riot against that, it would be more like the 1960s riots in Chicago or something, 68 riot, or what I saw in the universities in which the left was a big echo chamber and then went out and started rioting and did damage and there was zero public support and got Richard Nixon elected twice and and led to Ronald Reagan. I think they understand that, that there's no public support after what they've seen in 2020 and, and the four years of the riots of 2020 and what they saw with Joe Biden, especially given the whole Hamas thing when the, when the left just unabashedly and unapologetically went out and not only was pro-Hamas, but was anti-Semitic. I just don't see it. I don't think, even among big ticket donors on the left, I don't see there's that passion there. We're going to go out there and we're going to riot because Joe Biden and his agenda are not there. I don't see it at all. The other side of the coin is Donald Trump could have stopped those riots of 120 days But once Jim Mattis and Mark Milley and all of his, the defense secretary, the chairman of the Joint Chief, the New York Times, everybody said he's a fascist, he's a Nazi-like, don't do this, we'll resign. It really got to him, and he backed off. And I say that not in a vacuum, because if you take the Rodney King riots of 1991, Colin Powell wrote a letter to then George H.W. Bush and said, Dear Mr. President, As chairman of the Joint Chiefs, I've got 5,000 Marines, and we can go right into South Central and stop this, and I'm ready to go. And Bush wrote back a little text and said, go to it, and they stopped it. And nobody on the left said a word. And so we have a long history of doing that to keep public order and Donald Trump. That was another, just to finish this kind of rant, that people don't understand that Donald Trump yelled a lot, he was going to do this. He suffered the wages of sounding hard right, but when you actually look at his, his rule, it was not vindictive. He did not weaponize the FBI. He did not fire and mass DOJ people and say, go after this person. He might have talked about it, but they didn't start auditing his public opinion, uh, enemies. They didn't put him on trial. The CIA was not under Mike Pompeo originally, was not a rogue agency. When they told Donald Trump, you have to appoint to preserve your presidency, somebody acceptable 
to the Democratic Party. So we want Jim Mattis in defense, H.R. McMaster, national security, John Bolton to replace him, people like that he brought in. And mm. he got frustrated because a lot of people didn't want to follow the MAGA agenda, although I think McMaster tried to. Then he would lash out and say things, and then they would fixate on a tweet or something. But my God, compared to Bill Clinton or Barack Obama or Richard Nixon, he was not a vindictive, go-after-enemies-everywhere president. They would want him to be, but he was a business person. And for 50 years, his whole view of the world was when you cut a deal and you win that deal, you never speak ill of the person who you think you beat because you might have to do business with him again and you don't want to rub his nose in it, and everything's negotiable. You can say to Kim Jong-un, I've got a bigger button than you do, and everybody in the left goes crazy, and then you can cut a deal with him, and you just tell him, look, there's no reason why I need to fight. You're a communist dictator. Okay, I get that. You point another missile at Portland, and you're going to be vanished. But why would we do that? We can cut a deal. That's the way he did everything. I'm going to destroy NATO. I, they, they don't pay their $100 million. They don't pay their 2%. They're free lighters. And then secretly, he went over and said, don't listen to all that. Just pay up the 2% and of GDP on defense and we'll be fine. And they did. Eight countries did. He never got the benefit of that because of the art of the deal, talk tough, trash talk, and then privately cut a deal and don't be vindictive and don't humiliate the person that you were dealing with. He really got hurt with Putin. He did more to corral Putin. He put higher sanctions on oligarchs. He got out of an asymmetrical missile, long-range missile deal, short-range missile deal with him. He flooded the world with oil that almost destroyed the price for Putin's income. And uh, he sold offensive weapons to Ukraine that Obama had dared not do. I could go on, but the point is Putin did not go in to Ukraine under those four years, that hiatus. He went under Obama, he went in under Biden. And yet everybody said he's pro-Russian. He's a Russian stooge. He's a Russian asset. And I mean everybody from the former CIA director to the former director of national intelligence. They all vilified him, but they didn't understand how he does business. And... Uh, I wish he didn't talk like that, but that was necessary in his way of thinking to get a deal. Talk really tough so that you have credibility, and then they fear you, they think you're crazy, and then when you, you get a deal and you get your agenda enacted, then you praise the person to the skies. It was interesting in that Robert Kaplan essay that I think started a lot of the latest dictator meme, there was a section there on foreign policy that essentially just admitted that Donald Trump was an effective foreign policy president. And this is from a in an essay saying, you know, he's a dictator from a sort of very recognized never Trump writer. Yeah. I mean, when you look back at what he did, he changed the entire paradigm of the way we look at China. NATO is in a much better position to help Ukraine now because Donald Trump screamed and yelled at him to spend more. He moved the embassy to Jerusalem. They said you couldn't do that. He, he said they're never going to get back the Golden Heights. They said he couldn't do that. He got out of the Iran deal. He sanctioned Iran. $50 billion they lost in income, which Obama. He said the Houthis were terrorists. We're going to really clamp down on them if they dare do anything in the Red Sea. He killed Soleimani. He killed Soleimani, and they said that's going to start a war. And then he bragged that Iran had called him up and said privately, Mr. President, if you don't attack Iran, we're going to send some missiles near your bases. Keep everybody on the bases. They're going to explode three or 400 yards away. We're going to say we retaliated, but don't get mad at us. That's a fact. That's what he did. And everybody to this day said he was reckless, but there was no war in the Middle East um, like we saw now. There was no Ukrainian war. There was, he had a plan for Afghanistan to keep Bagram Air Base and a fortified compound of about 3,500 soldiers that was defensible, biggest air bases in that whole Asian region. So it was a pretty stable idea. And he had people working for him, Mike Pompeo, Robert O'Brien, they were very good, but everybody's forgotten that. And look at the world today with the Ukrainian invasion, the Afghanistan humiliation, the Chinese spy balloon, the Hamas 
killing more Jews in one day than in any day since the Holocaust, is falling apart. And look at the Red Sea. The Biden administration has basically said the Red Sea is now inoperable for transoceanic commerce, and the Houthis control it. We can't do anything about it. Our, our, our soldiers are scattered all over in little bases in Syria and Iraq, and I don't know what to do, but we're not going to retaliate when they, they're the objects of uh, Iranian satellite missiles. You know, their satellites are just rocketing them all the time. So it's a very dangerous time right now. Well, Victor Davis answered, I think we'd better end it there. But thank you so much yeah. for coming on to Americano and absolutely delighted to have you on. And I do hope we'll get you on in 2024 if a civil war allows. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. We've got to remember that 65% of the country says they're conservative. And uh, <laughs> I live in a very rural area and I was an academic. And I, I would tell you that the people who are very angry at America, who are academics, they're not crazy. And the people who are very pro-American, as an academic, I would not want to cross them. They're my neighbors, and they are a very different sort of people. So the, the Civil War is never going to happen because the majority of people are traditionalist Americans, and they're very capable people. And the people who threaten it and have all of the institutional power, they're otherwise ill-equipped to deal with uh, traditional America. I don't want to go any further, but I don't think there was one person in my entire life at three or four different universities that knew how to shoot a gun. And if I walked down my rural avenue at 10 at night, I would not dare try to knock on the door of anybody. So <laughs> I think in that asymmetrical fashion, there's not going to be any violent war. And I, and I don't think there's any reason to be. So I, I'm kind of confident about that. Well, amen to that. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Faroz, and the rest of the Spectator's broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America. 